Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Well, I want to welcome you here this morning. Uh, we, I don't want to call this a one-off sermon, but this is not a part of our regular series. It's a special day. As many of you know, it's Father's Day. And as much as I struggled with Mother's Day sermon, I struggled just as equally with the Father's Day sermon. I uh, had the opportunity to sit and actually confess that to two of my daughters last night on the back porch. And uh, it's, I, I don't know, those of you who are fathers, um, you don't have to raise your hands. Well, I'm not going to ask the question. I'm going to guess you probably feel like failures at times. No, don't raise your hand on that. Uh, if you're like me, you struggle with doing the best and being the best that you can, but oftentimes finding yourself face down in the mud in the parenting realm. Um, like I said, on, on Mother's Day, I'm like, what do I say to mothers as a father to encourage you to continue the course? I'm asking even more so from a perspective of a father on Father's Day who knows he doesn't get it quite right most of the time, or at least it feels that way. And so how can I encourage fathers when I feel discouraged a lot? Um, you can ask any of my kids when dad loses their patience or his temper, it says things or reacts in a way that is unbecoming, not just of a dad, but also of a dad who's a pastor of a congregation trying to lead a people to a place of holiness and life change and transformation when he doesn't seem to ever get his act together. A lot of times my kids are asked the question, is your dad like this at home? And they say yes, not because I've given them money to say that, but because I am goofy wherever I am. I try to be as transparent and as open as honest as I can. But they've seen also a side of the temper and the anger that can come out when the buttons are pushed. And let's be honest, your kids know where the launch sequence is. It's under that little plastic thing that you lift up, and there's a red button that says, do not touch this but they find a way to lift that little plastic cover that's locked and push that launch sequence. Now, this missile right here should be able to be self-controlled and not boom, but sometimes he does, right? I'm not gonna blame the kids for how I react to childish or frustrating behavior. That's on me. And so sometimes I find myself, and the two fathers I'm going to contrast for you today in the message, I find myself in the quadrant of the bad father. There are two guys today I want us to look at, one Old Testament character and one New Testament character. There's a guy in the Old Testament by the name of Eli. Eli was a high priest of the tabernacle before the temple was ever built. Eli, you can find him in 1 Samuel. And Eli was the one who... Saul, um, Samuel's mom, in the, in the tabernacle and thought she was drunk because she was praying quietly. Her lips were moving, but no sound was coming out, and she was bawling cra like, like crazy. 
because she wanted a child. And Eli walks over to her and he's like, seriously, do you have to come in here while you're drunk? I'm paraphrasing, read it for yourself. All right, the first few chapters of Samuel. Uh, and, And she's like, oh, my Lord, lowercase l, I'm not drunk, I'm just very saddened. I've not been able to have children for my husband, and uh, it would be the greatest joy of my existence to be able to have a son. And once he realized she wasn't drunk, he said, go on your way. The Lord has heard your request. This time next year, you'll be pregnant. You'll have a son. And so she did. She promised Eli that, or she promised the Lord that she, if she was allowed to become pregnant with the son that she would dedicate his life to temple work in the ministry. His life would be fully dedicated to God. So when he was weaned, probably about three or four years old, she took him back to the tabernacle and Eli raised him. Now, Eli had two other sons, not Phineas and Ferb, but Phineas and Hophni. Uh, when, I was teaching, when I was teaching Bible at uh, Penn Christian Academy for middle school, it was do you guys remember Phineas and Ferb? Is this like, is that way out of your age range? Okay. So I remember teaching, and that's how you remember it. It's not Phineas and Ferb. What is it? Oh, it starts with an H. It's Hophni. That's right. Well, Eli had two older sons, but now he's been given charge of Samuel to also raise. And so he's raising Samuel, but he's also raising Phineas and Hophni. And Phineas and Hophni actually go off the rails at a pretty early age so that by the time they're adults and they're starting to be given charge of certain priestly duties in the tabernacle, it's, it's really bad. And uh, Eli doesn't do much about it except wag a finger and scold them without consequence. And then we look at a New Testament character. His name is Joseph. And you say, oh, I can't measure up to Joseph. He raised the son of God. Uh, but we're going to look at the challenges that Joseph had. We aren't told a whole lot about Joseph in the New Testament. But what we are told, we can actually see a lot of his fathering techniques, even raising a perfect child. Okay? So I'm going to contrast those two today. I read you um, a a perspective on the creation of a mother on Mother's Day. Well, I actually found one about the creation of a father by God. So if you'll bear with me, I'm going to read through it. It's been said that when, I, when, when, the, when the Lord was creating fathers, he started with a tall frame. Now, I know not every guy is tall, but typically we're taller than women on majority of the cases. And an angel nearby said, what kind of father is that? If you're going to make children so close to the ground, why do you put fathers up so high? He won't be able to shoot marbles without kneeling or tuck a child into bed without bending over or even kiss his child without a lot of stooping. And God smiled and said, yes, but if I make him child size, who would children have to look up to? And when God made fathers, the father's hands, they were large and sinewy, veins popping out, you know, that kind of stuff. Gnarly knuckles from time to time. The angel shook her head and said sadly, do you know what you're doing? 
Large hands are clumsy. They can't manage diaper pins, small buttons, rubber bands, or ponytails, or even remove splinters because caused by baseball bats. And God smiled and said, I know, but they're large enough to hold everything a boy can empty from his pockets at the end of a day, and yet small enough to cup a child's face in his hands when they're crying. And then God molded long, slim legs and broad shoulders, and the angel nearly had a heart attack. Boy, this is the end of the week, all right. Do you realize that you just made a father without a lap? How's he going to pull a child close to him without the kid falling between his legs? And God smiled and said, a mother needs a lap. A father needs strong shoulders to pull a sled, to balance a boy on a bicycle, and to hold a sleepy head on the way home from the circus. And God was in the middle of creating two of the largest feet anyone could have ever seen, and the angel finally couldn't contain herself any longer. And she said, now that's not fair. I mean, all the other stuff, okay, but feet like that? Do you honestly think those large boats are going to dig out of bed early in the morning when the baby cries or walk through a, a small birthday party without crushing at least three of the guests? And God smiled and said, they'll work. You'll see. They'll support a child who wants to ride a horse to Banbury Cross, scare off mice at the summer cabin, or display shoes that will be a challenge to fill. God worked throughout the night giving the father a few words, a few words, but a firm authoritative voice. Eyes that saw everything, but remained calm and tolerant. <laughs> Not true in my case. Anyway, finally, almost as an afterthought, he added tears. And then he turned to the angel and said, now, are you satisfied that he can love as much as a mother. And with that, the actual version says, the angel shutteth up. I just put remain silent. But I should have said shutteth up anyway because I just told it to you. All right. So Eli, let's look at Eli for a minute. Eli's story is found in, like I said, the first few chapters of 1 Samuel. And I'm going to be looking at chapter 2 and chapter 3 specifically this morning uh, as we contrast Eli and Joseph. So if you would turn with me, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, starting at chapter 2, verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli, he's talking about Phineas and Ferb, remember? Hophni. I know, I heard that razzmatazz over there. Now, Eli... Uh, now the sons of Eli were scoundrels. What's a scoundrel? It's a bad person. Yes, that is the best description of it. Scoundrel. They were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord. Again, capital L-O-R-D. That means Yahweh, the God of gods, the King of kings, the only God. They had no respect for the Lord. Now think of this. They were priests helping with priestly duties in the temple under their father, Eli, who was the high priest. And they had no respect for God. Happens in the church sometimes with pastoral leaders. 
They had no respect for their duties as priests. Whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, Eli's sons would send over a servant with a three-pronged fork. While the meat of the sacrificed animal was still boiling, the servant would stick the fork into the pot, demand that whatever it brought up be given to Eli's sons. Now, I want to talk to you about the different kinds of sacrifices. You go to Leviticus, which is one of your most favorite books of the Bible. When you start reading in there, it's just a load of fun, isn't it? But in there, when you get closer toward the end of the book of Leviticus, they talk about the various different sacrifices that you were to make for different types of things. There were peace offerings, there were sacrificial offerings for sin, there were uh, other kinds of offerings, you can just look them up. Now, how they used these offerings was different. A burnt offering, as you've heard me talk about before, is where you would take the whole animal everything intestines you didn't gut it like you would a deer during hunting season you would just take the whole animal after you'd slit its throat sorry to be so graphic and you would lay it on the altar and everything would be consumed it was basically a cremation ceremony of this animal that was a burnt offering but not every offering was like that because the priests were allowed to take certain portions of the meat of certain offerings so that they could continue to eat it was a part of their payment from the lord for their priestly duties they weren't allowed to own land they weren't allowed to own livestock or anything like that so how they made their living was continuing to be priests on behalf of the people to god and they would retain a certain amount of the portions of each of the offerings made so that they could continue to live okay so sometimes instead of burning the offering they would boil it down why would you boil it when you actually boil a roast or something what boils off the fat. So the fat of these offerings were oftentimes given as an offering to the Lord. So they would boil off the fat. And not until the fat had been boiled off could the priest take the meat. Okay? Because the fat was the offering. And so what was his sons, the scoundrels, doing? Before the fat had burned off. They didn't want it to fully cook in the pot because, guess what? They would demand the raw meat with the fat on it because it made a good roast. Doesn't it? The fat makes things tastier. He would remain, uh, he would, uh, sometimes a servant would come even before the animal's fat had been burned on the altar, verse 15, and he would demand raw meat before it had been boiled so it could be used for roasting. I, I don't care about the offering to God. I care about my tummy. I'm craving some good roast. So give me a portion of what you have that's due to me before it's even offered to God. That was actually a blasphemous, horrible thing to do. Okay? The, the man offering the sacrifice might reply... Take as much as you want, but the fat has to be burned first. Even the regular lay person who was bringing their sacrifice to God and having the priest offer it to God knew better. And then the servant would demand, no, give it to me or I will take it by force. 
So the sin of these young men, Phineas and Hophni, was very serious in the Lord's sight, for they treated the Lord's offerings with contempt, thus not only treating the Lord with contempt, but the ones who were bringing the offerings. They only cared about themselves. Now Eli, verse 22, jump down there with me, was very old, but he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. Did you catch that? This is a father who is aware of what's going on with his sons. He knew, for instance, listen, there's more to the story, that his sons were seducing the young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. Hey, baby, what's up? You're looking mighty fine in that shroud, right? I, I don't know if that's how it went. I'm just guessing. And Eli said to them, now listen, I have been hearing reports from all the people about the wicked things you're doing. Why do you keep sinning? You must stop, my sons. The reports I hear among the Lord's people are not good. If someone sins against another person, God can mediate for the guilty party. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? But Eli's sons wouldn't listen to their father, for the Lord was already planning to put them to death. Now, chapter 3, verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I'm going to carry out all my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I, I've warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. He's given them a stern rebuke and a wagging finger, but there's been no consequence for their sinful behavior. And as high priest and as their father, he had more authority and power than he used with his sons. So God says, I have vowed that the sins of Eli and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices or offerings. All right, let's take a look at Joseph. You excited? Matthew chapter 1, starting with verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, whom, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. And as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. See, that's vitally important because there was an assumption that she had been unfaithful to him. How else do babies come into the world? Except through the consummation of two persons of the opposite sex. But the angel is saying, don't be afraid. She's not been unfaithful to you. The child within her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. 
And all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. Now, the key point is God's protection is reflected in the love of a father. And how is God's protection reflected in the love of a father as we contrast Eli and Joseph today? The first thing is a father looks to God for direction. Okay, I'm not saying there are not good fathers who are not Christians. But the way God created us in his own image is to reflect his glory to the world around us. And we are to be ambassadors for Christ. So those we, we as fathers were created to follow Christ. We were created to stand in, to be there, to protect, to care for. And the only way we can do that with true assurance and effectiveness is to look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. A good father looks to God for direction. Eli, let's look at him for a second. Cameron Butel writes, Eli was not a reprobate. He was actually a pretty good guy. If you read the whole story of Eli, he, he had good desires for the people of Israel. Reverence for God. He had a hatred of evil, but his hatred of evil didn't produce an active response. I can hate something, but not do anything about it. Do you do this when you read the news or when you see what's going on in your local community? Ooh, that's horrible. I really hate that. And sometimes we might even say, but I don't know what to do about it. It's kind of Eli. I mean, I love my sons. I don't want to do something that's going to hurt or harm them. And I feel really guilty if I have to punish them, but they need to be punished. But what's the easy thing to do? I guess the easy thing is just to not do anything about it. Maybe it'll go away. You ever have that mindset? If I ignore it long enough, they'll grow out of it. Maybe my kid's behavior will change. It's just childish behavior. So let's just, okay. <laughs> All right. Eli's passive approach ended up ultimately bringing disastrous results for his family and the nation of Israel. It's one thing to be in a position of godly leadership and quite another to actually lead a godly life. Let me say that one more time because this hits close to home as a pastor. It's one thing to be in a position of godly leadership, even the head of your home, and quite another to actually lead a godly life. Though Eli had the position of high priest, his qualifications and his pedigree, they were impeccable. Eli merely went through the motions of his position rather than truly seeking after the heart of God. God, what do I do in this situation? Help me understand and help me to make the tough choices when it eludes me or when it's, when it's hard. And this was a reflect, this, this, this type of inactive anger, if you will, was 
reflected in his son's wicked behavior as they fulfilled their obligations as priests in the tabernacle. There would come a time, however, God would confront Eli about his allegiances. I want you to hear what God says directly to Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting with verse 27. One day a man of God came to Eli and gave him this message from the Lord. I revealed myself to your ancestors when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. You see, Eli was a part of the priesthood through the line of Aaron, who was Moses' brother. He says, I chose your ancestor Aaron from among all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer sacrifices on my altar, to burn incense, and to wear the priestly vest as he served me. That priestly vest was a rectangular piece with a different jewel, 12 of them to be exact, representing each of the tribes of Israel. I sent you there, I sent Aaron there, and now you are in his lineage in the same role advocating for the people. And I assigned the sacrificial offerings to your priests. So why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings? Now listen to this next sentence. Why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? For you and they have become fat from the best offerings of my people Israel. We know that Eli was, was a fat man. We read about that, read about it. He got news when his sons had died, and he was leaning back at the city gates or at the temple courts, if you will, or the tabernacle courts. He was leaning back on his chair, his stool. You know, all four on the floor, we say. <laughs> but he was back on two. And when he got the shock of a lifetime that his sons had died, it says he fell back and broke his neck. But he was a rather portly man. I'm not going to say anything because I'm on the road to portliness. <laughs> what about Joseph? Joseph, on the other hand, was open and sensitive to God's leading and contemplating the decision of whether or not to take Mary as his wife, since she had now become pregnant, Joseph, a godly man, he's in a godly position, not as a priest, just as a common man, but he's in a godly position on what is he going to do with Mary? He didn't want to disgrace her publicly. Instead, what did he decide to do? He was going to break the betrothment quietly. He, he knew the condemnation that she would suffer for being pregnant out of wedlock, and he didn't want her to suffer further by condemning her himself for what seemed to be a betrayal of trust. Think about the godliness of that kind of response. He could have shamed her publicly. That was kind of a common thing to do in those days. If a woman became pregnant who was betrothed to another, it was a public shaming festival. But Joseph, being the good man he is, and because he still loved her, decided to break it quietly, not to shame her publicly, and I'm sure completely brokenhearted over it. As Joseph 
wrestled with this decision. An angel appeared to him, encouraging him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, and that the child she was carrying was not conceived in adultery, but rather by the Holy Spirit, trusting in God more than worrying about his reputation, Joseph resolved to take Mary as his wife and raise the son that she was carrying that was not from his own loins as his very own. Joseph's willingness to follow God's direction rather than his own inclinations allowed him the privilege of being the adoptive father of the Son of God. Don't let that slip by without taking note of it. See, Joseph could have missed out on a blessing had he followed through with what he thought was the right thing to do, just as Eli missed out on a blessing by not doing what he should have done. Another thing we learn is that a father disciplines his children out of love. Now, there's a fine line, I know. And one of the things we've tried to live by, and I've not done it so well, is something that we learned from books we read when we were younger, a younger couple, my wife and I. And we learned that we only are to discipline for what is called direct disobedience. You don't discipline for childish behavior like spilling a cup of milk or messing up something because kids are in the learning stage and phase, right? You discipline only when there is direct disobedience. It's like this. Uh, your kid, you tell your kid, all right, I want you to make your bed. No. That's direct disobedience. Is there a consequence for that behavior? Now, the punishment must fit the crime, right? And say, okay, if you don't make your bed, then this is going to happen. Final warning. Now, you can't keep giving warning after warning after warning, because guess what kids do? Oh, I know they're going to keep warning and warning, but nothing's going to happen. Like Eli. Well, how does this reflect in Joseph, though? Jesus was perfect in every way. He never had to discipline. Well, there is a case that still assures Jesus' integrity of non-sinfulness that we read about when he's about 12 years of age that I want to talk to you about, but we'll get there in a second. Let's look at Eli really quickly. Eli, provocation can come in different forms. Now, I want you to read this verse with me, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Now, this is New Testament. It, it should apply to Eli, but this was written way after Eli's time. But I want you to listen to what Paul says. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. I wrestled with this for 21 years. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. As much as I've tried, I've often failed. And I know I've provoked each of my children to anger because there's a pridefulness that I wrestle with from time to time. I need to be right. I'm the father. They need to know that. And there is truth to that. I'm not your friend. I'm your dad. Eventually, someday, we may transition into that when you reach adulthood and you launch out on your own. But while you're still under my care, I can be friendly to you, I'm going to love you, we can have conversations, but I'm still your dad, okay? And, but, but there are times when that, I told you that launch button, that I allow them to set me off. I have control over that. 
And I have allowed them to set me off to the point to where I've lost control, not physically, but verbally, right? Kids? And they're like, preach it! <laughs> that I know I've provoked them into anger. It's, it's this, the, the verse that he's talking about that when he says this is, it has to do to discourage them beyond necessary. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, there's, there's a sense of discouragement where you're like, no, you shouldn't do that. I'm going to discourage you from doing that because it's not good for you. And a sense of discouragement that says, oh, yeah, I'll show you who's boss. There's a healthy balance in there, a godly balance. But oftentimes I find myself out of balance. So what about Eli? Provocation can come in different forms. Anger toward another can come from direct frustration due to inequitable actions, but it can also come as a result of neglect. I've seen many fathers who have neglected, they've not intervened, they've, done, they've just been, though they may have been physically present, have not been present. And it has evoked an anger in the child. We aren't told specifically how Eli raised his sons, Phineas and Hophni, but we can deduce something about his parenting by how they disregarded him when they became adults. Eli's sons didn't seem to have ever been told no. Have you ever met a kid or a family where the kids are never told no? I've said this, I think, recently. It may have been, it may have been Mother's Day, actually. But have you ever seen kids that were ever given everything they ever demanded and were never told no? They're brats, is that what you said? Do they come up to be loving, productive citizens? <laughs> they, they probably do in some regard, but typically you find them having low morals, uh, having this me-centered expectation in the workplace, in the public place, anywhere. And they suffer for it. They become very angry people because they realize in the real world you don't get whatever you want when you want it and you are oftentimes told no in the real world. And sometimes you suffer greatly when you try to do your own thing and people in your workplace are telling you no. You sometimes find yourself canned and out on the curb or behind bars depending on the severity of the issue. You see, it's one thing to acknowledge evil and wrongdoing and quite another to do something about it. Eli may have acknowledged the evil of his sons when he said, stop doing the evil things I'm hearing you're doing. But he was unwilling to do anything more than scold them. What about, oh, let me, let me read this quote. Cameron Boutel writes again, Eli's delayed objections to his son's behavior actually end up ringing hollow. It's like what I was telling you a moment ago. As a father, if I keep warning and warning and warning and then there's no consequence for behavior, it's like, dad's never going to do anything about this. Mom's never going to do anything about this. I can get away with anything. I just have to deal with the lecture, right? But if there's action and consequences to certain behaviors, then the kids that you're raising realize, okay, they're serious about this. I know I can only go this far and no further. There, are, there is security within healthy boundaries. 
It is not a prison you are locked in. You may feel that way, kids or teens, in the moment. I do, my parents are so strict. They never let me do anything. You ever hear that? I've done that before as a kid. But as I've grown into adulthood, I realized those boundaries were there to protect me, not to harm me. They weren't there to pin me in, but to secure me for a good future. Okay? What about Joseph? Okay, how did Joseph couldn't, he didn't ever have to discipline. Jesus was perfect. So how does this even apply? Well, let's look at one specific case, and it wasn't so much a discipline, but there's something going on here, okay? Luke chapter 2, starting with the verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for Passover. When Jesus was 12 years old, he attended the festival as usual, or they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth. Now keep in mind, Nazareth is in the northern part of Israel. Jerusalem is in the southern part. It is several days' travel between the two. But Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem while the caravan of his family and friends made their way back to Nazareth. Have you ever forgotten a kid? <laughs> yeah, we have too. Sometimes we've forgotten them at the church. I thought you had them. I thought you, because we drive separate sometimes. That's been a while, all right? All right, let me see. His parents didn't miss him at first <laughs> because they assumed he was just among the other travelers. They drove in caravans when they were going on Passover. They would make kind of a, a fun trip of it. You ever caravaned with people on vacation before? Okay. Well, they, have you seen, what's the Christmas movie we watch sometimes? Home Alone. Yeah, it's like that. They left Jesus behind at Christmas, or at Passover. But when he didn't show up that evening, because they stopped along the way, they bedded down, they built their fires, they're going to eat food, set up their tents. <laughs> Anybody seen Jesus? Where's Jesus? Oh, no. We've left him they started looking for him among their relatives and their friends who were traveling with them. And when they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, okay, so it's, we've gotten to our kid sooner than three days. All right. But three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, the second temple that was built, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him that were there were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This kid's pretty bright. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Why? Your father and I have been frantic searching for you everywhere. You ever said that to your kid? But why did you need to search, Jesus says. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Well, they didn't understand what he meant. And they returned to Nazareth. He returned, now I want you to hear this. He returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. 
He didn't do anything wrong, but they had been given trust of him through his formative years. And he obeyed them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. And then verse 52, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. Now, I want you to hear this. Though Jesus had not sinned in his remaining behind, there's a moment of scolding that comes from Mary and Joseph out of sheer exasperation and fear and worry. The rebuke from Mary and Joseph was more of a concern of loss rather than a frustration of wrongdoing. And at the end of this scenario, what we read is that Jesus returned with them to Nazareth and was obedient to them. Further, we are told that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. And I have to believe that Joseph's role as Jesus' earthly father played a large part in his upbringing. The wisdom that he acquired, the respect and the favor he attained, I believe was, yes, he was the son of God, but I think it was due in large part to the very fact of his earthly parents' upbringing. We know Jesus learned the trade of his father, his earthly father. What was he? Yeah, we call it carpenter, but he was a tecton. What is a tecton? They are builders. In those days, yes, they worked with wood, but they also worked with stone. They would have been stone masons and woodworkers, anything they could use as building material, mud bricks they used. Jesus was a builder. Find it interesting that he followed in the footsteps of his earthly father and his heavenly father because they're both builders. You find that pretty intriguing? I do. Lastly, a father leads his family in righteousness. This is hard. <clears throat> it's really hard to lead your family in righteousness, to lead your children in righteousness, to lead them to lead holy lives by being the example of a holy life lived. It's difficult. As we look at Eli, we've already discussed that he had the appearance of being righteous but did not have the actions to back it up. This is one of the things, I'll go back to what I said earlier. A lot of people say, is your dad like this at home? Remember what I, and they'll say, yes. Because it gets annoying when you hear it enough, right? <laughs> what is it, uh, familiar, familiarity breeds contempt? But my, I, I, I don't mean to put them on the spot, but they, my two oldest daughters really blessed me last night. We were sitting on the back porch, and, or I was sitting on the back porch just kind of, you know, doing my defragmenting of the hard drive of my mind over the, you know, the long day. And, and, uh, and it was in my shorts and my t-shirt, just relaxing. And Micaiah comes out and the camera comes out and we just start talking. It's one of those rare moments. We don't get those as often as I would like, but as adult kids now, and I call them kids, but as adults now, we're talking about adult things and they blessed me and inadvertently blessed their mother because I told them some of the stuff we talked about. I hope that's okay. And, um, and it was okay, right? Okay. But um, they were just blessing me and blessing us with their words of encouragement. And I said, it's interesting because I was sitting out on the back porch processing what I was going to say today. And knowing that I'd worked on this message and feeling like an utter failure as a father because I know more than anyone else where all my blemishes and warts are. 
I know all that I've done and even all that I've thought of that hasn't measured up to God's best. And I know my kids don't always see God's best in me and through me. And so I'm sitting there just really kind of beating myself up on the back porch about, you know, I got to preach this message, this Father's Day message. And am I going to do it in a way that's hypocritical? Am I going to challenge fathers and encourage fathers when I myself need to be challenged and need to be encouraged because I know where I fail most often as a father? And they continue to breathe life into me. I think it was the hand of God. I don't think they realized it. I think it was the hand of God knowing mentally and emotionally where I was to send his messengers out to me in a way that only he could speak to me and only they could speak to me. I'm not going to cry. It was just a very touching moment. It's one of those jewels that you find as you continue to excavate, and you're like, this is a keeper. I'm going to put that away. You see, I try to give more than just the appearance of righteousness to my kids. Where they're able and willing to listen, I try to breathe life and encouragement into them. And the only way I know to do that is to reflect Jesus and to reflect his word. And I know they get sick of hearing their preacher daddy talk about the Bible and about God a lot, but I don't know that they really do. Because I want them to see that everything in life must be rooted in Christ. It doesn't mean it's going to be an easy life, but it does mean it can be, be, be the most abundant and fulfilling life possible. It won't be a life lived in vain if rooted in Christ. But see, what Eli was doing is he was giving the appearance of righteousness to the people, but behind the scenes and in the home, the way he was raising is, please understand me here, I think Eli played a part in ruining his kids. This doesn't mean that there are not prodigal kids who've grown up in homes that are healthy and good and have a solid godly foundation. Please don't mishear me. Some of you parents, some of you dads have done everything you know to do. You have laid a foundation. You have tried to help them build on the rock. But sometimes when they launch, they say, yeah, that's not for me. I'm going to go do my own thing. That's not on you. But Eli set his kids up for failure in his neglect, in his being hypocritical by playing a part publicly but never living the part behind the scenes. That's the difference. And his children, his boys, suffered for it. He should have disciplined them in righteousness and pointed to God to help them understand there is a fear of God you should have. And it's not like, oh gosh, no, like this. It is a fear of holy reverence to where when I'm in the presence of God, I am on my face honoring the sovereignty of my Lord who created me and everything around me. But what about Joseph? And we don't read a whole lot, like I said earlier, about Joseph beyond the encounter with Jesus in the temple at 12 years old. We don't read anything else after that point. But I know Joseph continued to have an influence on Jesus' life as he grew into adulthood. We know that Jesus learned to care for others by the influence of Joseph's care for his wife and his family. We know the importance of faith and religion in Jesus' life through Joseph's role in taking the family on pilgrimages to Jerusalem for annual festivals like Passover. 
The influences on Jesus' life from Joseph are great and should not be overlooked. From before his birth to the day that Joseph died, Joseph lived a righteous life and modeled a life sincerely to his family. It should also be noted before we move on that we can see evidence of Joseph's influence through two of his other sons that we read about in the Bible who actually wrote books of the Bible. So if we want to look at Jesus, what about James and Jude? James and Jude have written books of the New Testament. Yes, it is because of the influence of Jesus, the resurrected Christ on their lives, but I also believe that they grew up in a godly home with a righteous father who always pointed to the heavenly father. So as our worship team comes forward to close us out today, let me close with this. There's a story of a young pastor in Ohio who also worked at a feed processing plant in order to make ends meet. There are a lot of bivocational pastors out there because ministry is not where the money is. I'll just tell you that. It's not, uh, you, you can make a living, but it's not like uh, you're making six figures and all that jazz, okay? Each night, he went home, his boys would look at him and say, after he'd come in from the, the feed processing plant, boy, dad, you are dusty. And he would grumble to himself, but then he'd smile and say, yeah, I sure am dusty. And one Saturday morning as he was washing his car, he looked over and saw his oldest son, who was four years old at the time, begin to pick up some dirt and stones from the driveway and rub them all over his nice clean pants. And after... The father asks, what are you doing? He says, Dad, I want to be dusty just like you. Through a lack of godly direction, discipline, and leading in righteousness, Eli's sons suffered the consequences of self-destructive behavior. But with the presence of those values, uh, but with the presence of those values, in his parenting, Joseph raised Jesus in a way that encouraged God's will and purpose in his life. Let me say this as a close. Dads, you may not be perfect. None of you are. I'm not. It's not an excuse. Hear me very clearly. It's not an excuse, but it is a reality. You are a good part of God's creation intentionally created in the image of God. The indelible imprint you leave on your children is vastly important to their growth and development from childhood all the way into adulthood and beyond. Your love, your presence, your protection, your provision reflect security and they reflect safety. To your kids your discipline though tough at times provides stability and direction your willingness to show up means more than you can ever know and your words of affirmation are better than a trophy or an award that they could ever receive for hitting the home run and where you leave gaps <laughs> and there may be many if you lean into that relationship with God, he can fill in your gaps. That's my only hope as a father myself, is knowing that where I have broken the trust of my children, 
or provoke them to anger. As much as I can do to repair that, God's grace is still more sufficient than my weakness. Even circling back when I know I've done wrong and kneeling before my kids when they were younger and now standing looking up to some of them, (laughs) saying, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? I'm still working at this thing called fatherhood and I know I don't do it perfect every time, but I still want you to trust me. Please forgive me. Sometimes it takes kids a while to get over hurts. But continue to be consistent. And trust the fact that God can fill in your gaps. Stay strong, stay present, stay focused, and stay committed. You know how many times I've told my girls this yesterday, how many times I've looked up and said, God, you picked the wrong guy to be a dad. No joke. You've picked the wrong guy. I can't do this. And that still small voice comes and says, you're right, you can't. Why are you only relying on you when you should be relying on me? And every time, he's like, I know he feels like a broken record with me because I'm like, oh, you're right. Please forgive me. I'll look to you. I don't know why I keep looking to me. Stay focused, stay committed, though it's the toughest job you will ever do. It's the toughest job you will ever do. Being a father is the most important title you will ever have and the most rewarding work you will ever do. I think this is oftentimes why dads become workaholics, because they feel more fulfilled in seeing a finished product at the end of the day than they do oftentimes, I think, the long haul of fatherhood, which is fraught with difficulties. Dads, stay present, stay focused, stay committed, and allow God to fill in your gaps. You are good because you are image bearers of the almighty God. Reflect his goodness to your children even when it's tough. Father, these men and women here today, I don't know where this message has landed. I know many of them probably didn't have the greatest fathers of all time. Some of them did and have nothing but good to say. And God, with our varied backgrounds, histories, experiences that we bring into this place all together as the body of Christ, I know that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. You are the consistent heavenly Father who loves. And yes, disciplines those he loves help those of us who are fathers in this place and within an earshot of this message to be encouraged to stand in the gap for our children to be reminded that we are a part of your good creation and to be reminded that though we may fail You can fill in those gaps if we lean into you. Remind us that we are not the sum result of our failures as fathers, but God, we are. We are works of your creation. Pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit today. 
Forgive us where we faltered. Help us to do what's right and what's good, even when we're completely discouraged. And always, always reflect your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' precious and holy name. And God's people said, Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.